welcome to the Fracture Line, the official weekly news feed from the Chest Wall Injury Society, where we will listen to all the bottom line CWIS updates, shoutouts, fun facts, and weekly banner. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Crisco, and I'm joined always by Dr. Tom White, Dr. Adam Kay, and Sarah Ann Whitbeck. Welcome back to Fracture Line, everybody. Today it's just the crew and I, so Dr. Kay, Dr. White, Dr. Bauman, myself, and we have Sarah Ann joining us in just a bit. We wanted to talk a little bit about the future of some CWIS studies. What If we had an unlimited amount of finances, what are we thinking is the most important studies to uh, really press forward for us? So, Zach, you want to go first? Do you have any ideas, thoughts? What you, what, what's the future for you in research? Well, I mean, I feel like the non-flail indications are still somewhat up in the air. I feel like if anyone, you know, is giving us a, uh, you know, giving feedback to the indications, I, I just feel like we still need some more research looking at those specific indications, the specifically for the non-flail individuals. And so I think that if we can do studies that are uh, geared towards uh, those individuals, I think that's where a lot of our money, you know, would be very beneficial. I also think, you know, the PROMS, the uh, patient reported outcome metrics, you know, the long-term effects of uh, SSRF on patients, I think it's huge. As it was pointed out at the CWIS Summit, you know, especially by uh, our orthopedic colleagues, they can't even publish a study in the orthopedic journals if they haven't followed those patients out for at least a year. And I think that that's some that we definitely as a society should you know, really start to focus on is, is getting those uh, outcomes, those metrics uh, long-term for these individuals. So, so that'd be a couple of my, uh, my thoughts. I don't know what the rest of the crew thinks, but that's kind of what I'm thinking. Question for you, Zach. I mean, when you talk about more non-flail type, are, are you saying literally just repeat with a bigger cohort what we already did? Or what, what did you have in mind specifically for studying more non-flail? Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, a, a repeat of, of the non-flow that we did previously would be beneficial. You know, I think that the more patients you can get in that, but it's got to, the, the issue is it's got to be over a very finite timeline because I think the longer you spread the study out, the more the procedure changes. And I just think that it would have to be done in, in a year or two to really, you know, with a, with a vast number of patients to help make that a little bit more appropriate and, and more useful and maybe put uh, put to rest some of the some of what the naysayers out there are saying, you know, about uh, rib fixation and its utilization, specifically in that non-flail patient. I think the, in, in my humble opinion, I think the flail chest population I, in my institution, it's pretty much um, the standard of care. If you've got a flail chest and you don't have a, uh, you know, a non-survivable TBI, you are going to get your ribs fixed uh, just because the benefits I think have been shown time and time again the mortality improvement, the you know ventilator day decrease, the ICU and hospital length of stay decrease, the you know restoration of ventilatory mechanics as well as um, that increase in your lung volume. I think is just you know so vital to to patients. But uh, it's that that non-flow that I I think is still that sticking point for a lot of the naysayers, and I think that they have a difficult time. I think people have a difficult time kind of separating the two groups out. You know that in my opinion would be one of the areas of focus for going forward for studies. I would echo Dr. Bauman's uh, very cogent and erudite uh, assessment of our needs. But I, um, I think we've done ourselves somewhat of a disfavor in calling everybody with rib fractures who doesn't have flail, non-flail. You know, I've had a lot of conversations over the last week and a half with colleagues in Europe and elsewhere, and um, the studies have been disappointing in that they've shown no obvious benefit. No detriment, obviously. There's no, it's not inferior, but not 
not improve. But the problem is that the selection of patients is, you know, when those results are published and everybody looks at those and they say, well, if they don't have, if you don't have flail, you're not going to get benefit. So I think we need to do a better job of categorizing and classifying fracture patterns that aren't flail into the ones that are most severe and the ones that aren't as, as relevant. Just because your ribs overlap, that may not be the the main problem. It may be the the location of the of the non-flail ribs. It may be the number. It may be the pattern. It may be the amount of soft tissue destruction between the ribs, amount of volume loss in the lung. I mean, that Those kinds of things may be more important than the absolute number of three or more overlapped ribs. Do you see what I mean? I think we need to be a little more specific. Not everybody with non-flail belongs in the same bucket when it comes to contemplating and recommending an operation. So I think we need to figure out how we're going to do that. My other idea is that I think this would be a fairly easy study to do if we got a little bit of cash. You said we had unlimited cash. I would like everybody with bad rib fractures to get biomarkers on admission and then at 12 hours and then again at two days and whatever. And I'd, I would love to see what happens to people's inflammatory milieu post-fixation. My hypothesis is it, get, it gets better, just like it does for femur fractures and pelvis and other solid organ injuries. And it would be, it would be good to document that. That's something I'd like to see. This Chinese study that was just published. Oh, I didn't see it. They did that. Well, they did, they did, they didn't um, separate into fixing and non-fixing. They, they separated into fixing before 48 hours and after 48 hours. And they showed um, some of those factors. And they showed that they improved much faster and better if they fixed earlier on. Well, there you but, go. I mean, I think there's more to go. There's the pilot study. We should do it. We should do yeah. it on a bigger scale. Yeah. I have two thoughts for unlimited resources. One is, we still need to go back to basic science. Not that I'm a big basic scientist, but everything we do is mainly, is mainly um, clinical um, outcomes and clinical studies. Uh, but we have no, no idea what everything we're doing is, is appropriate or not. And this is me and, and, and Zach have talked about this in the past. If we could somehow get a, uh, you know, a good large animal lab going and have someone pay for all of it, plate like pigs and plate like, I don't know, other animals and see if what we're doing is correct. Three three screws on either side or not? You know all those different things that we are taking into as the as doctrine of how we do this and see if it's correct or not. Uh, I think that might be interesting just to show that it actually does work properly and and we've got good um anatomy um, um and, and histology to show that. That's number one. Number two, I think we need to have um, a, more studies on non-operative management patients. Because we're not, you know, this is our society is the operative and non-operative care of root fracture patients. And I think we just don't have enough data points on the non-operative. We, we, we know that these patients exist, but we don't follow them or anything. So I think that that's something also that's uh, imperative that we that we look to see. And because I, I have I, my own biased opinion is that if you take a person who's got a fracture and the person who doesn't have fractures, you go out six to 12 months. I think the current quality of life studies are not going to show much difference because things have healed. They may have healed screwy and, and, and whatever, but they've healed. You'll have a couple people who will still have the malunions and the nonunions and, and pain, but a lot of people will be okay. It's just, I think this is an operation that really um, helps the patient in the first three to six months to get back to life faster, and it's a much less of a, um, a strain on society that way. So it's just something that, that I've always thought of, and I think it'll be interesting to, you know, to look at that a little more. There's another area that I've been interested in for a long time, and that's a cheaper way to reconstruct chest walls. I think we need to put our collective head and energies together to find something. I know that you know we're at, be at somewhat at odds with industry as we do that. They're in the business of providing rib fixation products and making a profit doing that. I 
there, there are many areas in the world that can't afford to use these tools. And I, th I think we need to help them and find a way to fix fractures in a much less expensive way. I'm now, you guys will be very surprised to learn this, but I'm now, I'm now a member of the Twitter club. I now oh my God. have a Twitter address. Oh I, my. I know there's a story there, but the point is that I recently saw a case yesterday in there from a surgeon uh, from India who had this mangled thorax and was asking what, what would people do? And everybody jumped in and said, well, you should fix those. And he said, yeah, okay. And then he <laughs> tweeted, tweeted back the next day and described how he lashed things together with stainless steel wires. I haven't seen any imaging yet, but it's just, I, I, I felt his pain. I mean, he just didn't have, it was a beautiful case, but wow. he didn't have hardware to fix this mangled chest on this young patient whose life is likely ruined, potentially be salvaged. So if I had unlimited funds, I would build a lab somewhere and I would fill it with animals and I would, you know, design a, an animal model of rib fracture and then repair them with things that are a lot less expensive than titanium. See what works. You know, my thoughts were kind of a conglomeration of what was said already. But so I often ask myself, are we asking the wrong questions? Because we're getting into more and more I don't want to say elective chest wall repair, but is it purely for physiologic derangement all the time now, or is it to get someone back to sport earlier? Or is it to get the person like you referenced, Dr. K, back to work earlier? You know, so are we asking the, are our endpoints correct? So I'd, I'd love to see more studies talking exactly about what you mentioned, Dr. Bauman, which is patient reported outcomes and functional outcomes, which we don't have many studies talking about functional outcomes. We talk about the same things every time, pneumonia, pain assessments, you know, trach, all, all this stuff that frankly, if I'm not fixing a flail patient on a vent, it's, it's almost irrelevant, those outcomes. Uh, I'm, I'm more interested in getting this patient back to the, his, you know, he's a mechanic and he wants to get back to work soon because his whole life or a farmer their whole life revolves around work. And if he can't get back to the farm, he has to sell his farm. You know what I mean? So we're asking the wrong questions, I think. And so redoing a lot of the same studies we've done with a different endpoint, the right, in my opinion, the right endpoints for that patient population, the non-flail, yeah. if you will. And applying. Yeah, like the, the guy you just described, Mark, if you know three three or six months impossible. off of work is could be the death knell for him. And, and if, you know, as Adam alluded to, many of these patients will be functionally relatively normal in a year or two, but that may not be the right, be devastating. It's, for Yeah, I can, I can assure you for my patient population, it is devastating. So I find myself often plating ribs that, you know, none of us would say are awful, but I have them back and I, and I push them early. I'm okay with them stressing their plates at four weeks or five weeks. I push them really hard. So they're back early, yeah. early, early. So, you know, I think, I don't know if that's right. And, and I would love to say it is, but I can't say that it's right. I can, and I talk to my patients about that. And I say, you know, there's no great literature talking about what I'm doing, but I believe it'll get you back to work, you know, a lot faster with a lot more strength and a lot less loss. So I'd love to see more studies like that because, because yeah. it's just not, it doesn't exist for, for me out there. And, and the, the, the second one is the obvious. We always keep talking about costal margin injuries. That's a big spectrum of injuries, but all of us are doing it a little bit differently. And well, just an example, I just did my first uh, Hansen 3 yesterday or two days ago. And that's a very interesting repair and a lot of stuff going on in there that's completely theoretical. I mean, you're talking about you have no long-term data for these patients. And I have to tell the patients that, of course, but we need to do a lot more work as we're getting into the elective side of our practice 
not just the acute side of our practice, but the elective side of our practice, I, th I think deserves a lot more work. And, and that has a lot to do with the cost of margin, cost of cartilage and non-unions and all that kind of stuff. So if I had an unlimited, unlimited amount of funds, of course, I'd do the back to basics like you talked about and the PROs and all that. But if we're going to really start doing these cases electively, I want more data in that realm, a ton more data. Yeah. Hi, Sarah. Hello, Sarah Ann. What's going on? How are you? I'm fine. Just listening to you. Sarah, what's your study? Yeah, what do you want to do? We all give our thoughts. No, no, yeah, I'm what just do you want to do? What do you want to do? But what does Sarah want to do? I'm a non-clinician. I'm not sure I have much to offer this conversation, but... So we have CWIS International, and so now we're going to do CWIS Rural? Love it. Is that the next step? Love no, it. Oh, because then that would require rural. us to say that word again and again. Ew. That would almost be as terrible as the no-fo-mo-fo, you know, thing. Cirrus rural in a moist land. Oh. Right? Sarah? Oh. Oh. Yep. I'll just make a pamphlet about it this afternoon. Oh boy. <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> yep. That you do. Just put this on it. It's a good solve. Rub that on it. Some salve. One of the things that I've always been curious about, and I, I've mentioned this before, I've actually brought it up before, but you know, I always wondered why orthopedic surgeons, you know, you have that hundred year old that comes in that has like some underlying dementia and she falls and she breaks her hip and they take her and they, you know, plate her hip. And it's like, wow, you know, like she just, she has, you know, 10 comorbidities plus dementia. She's in a nursing home. You know, why did you, you know, why did you fix her hip fracture? And when you actually look at their studies, you know, they would suggest that they, if you don't fix their hip compared to if you do fix their hip, if you don't fix it, they have like a 77% one year mortality. And I've always wondered, you know, is, is that similar with rib fractures in the elderly? Like if I have an 85 year old that has eight, nine, 10 rib fractures from a fall, whether they're severely displaced or not. And even if they do okay in the hospital, I don't fix them. Are we potentially setting that patient up for, you know, a, a year mortality? I would love to do a study. Um, there actually is a big national database that you can pull uh, patients, I think social security numbers and see if they're still alive at like a year or two years down the road and just kind of see if there's a correlation there and if there's any uh, indication to just offer that patient fixation solely because they're, you know, 85 years old or 90 years old and they have X number of refractors. I don't know, but I just think it'd be, uh, be cool to find out. Might be a challenging IRB withholding a therapy that's known to be helpful from a group of patients. No, I don't disagree. Uh, I don't disagree. But it, could, but... it might be something we can glean from a retrospective look at a database, as you suggested. I think the question is, where are we going to get all the money to do these sweet studies? Right? You guys, we need some big grants. We need some big grants. That's next. Well, I am excited about our CWIS KLS Martin Fellowship for this year. I think it's very creative under the direction of Dr. Levy and Dr. Warner at University of Kentucky. And I'm excited. I th it's got a, a clever design and some good ideas. So I think got some cool motivation there. Yeah, I do too. Yeah, it would be really interesting to see the results next year. Yeah. For sure. You know, I'm sure some of our listeners and certainly many of our members were unable to participate in that presentation. So I think I want to get Dr. Levy to record it. We can post it online since we weren't recording things 
you know, overall from the conference. We don't have that captured, but I think it'd be good to have her give a presentation so that we can make sure we have that information available to everybody about the project. Speaking of which, it's coming like a freight train, but for 2024 selections, applications actually we have to move the deadlines forward a little bit because obviously our summit is a little bit earlier this year. And so our deadline and review process will come a little bit faster. So all of that will be due the CWIS KLS Martin Fellowship Award uh, applications will be due on November 1st. So to anyone who's listening and interested in starting to brew ideas, you have a little under uh, six months to come up with your idea and write a fabulous application that's going to win you an award. It feels like each year we have somewhere between about five to eight one time even 10 applications. So, you know, odds are pretty good. If you write a compelling application to say you have a 20% chance of winning $25,000 in grant money, that's a pretty compelling opportunity. So hopefully people take advantage of that. Cool. Tom, so is the uh, less than perfect study officially up and running? And have you had anyone call in yet to uh, basically share in their faults? We got a little bit distracted by the summit, but we're making some progress. We have our quantitative data person identified and on board and i need to just get the revised protocol submitted to our irb uh, i've got that on my list of things to do next week and we're also having an interviewer training session next monday i believe is that right sarah that's correct so monday's the day we're, we're getting closer zach just not quite there yet gotcha that makes sense what's amazing to me is how busy this might have to be my final stitch I'm overwhelmed at the summit of how much energy and how much conversation and how much interaction is going on. And it sweeps you up and it makes you forget everything that you wanted to talk about. I wanted to, I wanted to address the LTP and, and prepare the audience for that. I never got around to doing that. There's a couple other, exa- other examples of obvious things that I should have spoken to from the podium and I just either forgot or ran out of time. So I'm glad the summit is not our only form of communication with each other. Does anybody have that feeling? Are you just... We could have done that. We could have been there a week and still not covered everything we needed to cover. Felt that way to me. I think that's very true. I make lists of, okay, in the opening, you know, in the welcome on Thursday, we're going to talk about these topics. And then on Friday, welcome, we're going to talk about these topics. And, you know, I make these very comprehensive lists. And even when we get through the list, it feels like then I'm sitting in the back of the room and thinking, oh, no, we should have included that. You know, even though I think about the dumb list for a month leading up to the summit and it doesn't occur to me until the moment you step away from the microphone and then I'm, you know, chagrined that somehow I forgot something that in that moment feels really important. So we'll do better next year. It's amazing. Well, it happens every year. It's not even just this last year. Every year I tell myself, I'm like, I am going to have all of the announcements, like not a missed announcement this year. And then I'll be darned, despite like very careful attention to the script, it still doesn't work out. So maybe that's just part of the process. You know, we have a lot going on, which means there are a lot of announcements, a lot of things to talk about, and then stuff gets missed. So maybe if we did less, that might be the solution. You know, if we just did less, you know, then there wouldn't be as much to talk about. Or had lower expectations of ourselves. That could be work. Right. right. If, if the organization just did fewer things, so that may be an option. Oh, it's good to be busy. That is for sure. I was chatting with a colleague when we were at ESTES this last week, and they were asking about how many staff members we have. And before I responded, she continued on with, and she said, because you guys have so much programming, I'm sure you have a huge staff. And I was just 
kind of sheepishly smiling, thinking, I'm so glad that it looks like that, even though that's not what it is. You know, I was like, man, do I have people fooled? Like, except I don't. If anyone saw my inbox right now, or if you're one of the people waiting for a response, you know that that's not the case. But nonetheless, it was it was gratifying to hear that at least it sounds like an effort appears from the outside that there's so much going on that we could use a huge staff. We certainly could use more humans to do the work, but we also have a terrific volunteer group. So I will shout out all of them first and foremost, but it's a good group. Well, I think it just goes to show how good of a job you do as a CEO. Oh, thanks. The the whole duck mentality, you know, pedaling frantically underneath (laughs) and trying to like make it look super smooth on top. Yeah, that's... That is, uh, that's certainly the goal. It's like treading water. Yes. Oh my gosh. That feels like every day. As far as announcements for this week, the main one is that we are going to have case review on May 24th and it will be at 7 a.m. Mountain Time. So if you have any confusion about when that is, please feel free to look it up online and do the conversion to your specific time zone. Also, we are working on a webinar for May 31st. I think it's gonna be in the afternoon at two o'clock mountain time, but I'm waiting for final confirmation and then I'll send out an announcement. So tentatively put it on your, your calendar. Dr. Elliot Hout from, well, he's a, a member of a variety of societies. I was gonna say from East and WST, and certainly most people know of his leadership position with SACO and, and other things, but primarily he also works at Johns Hopkins. Um, that's where he's gainfully employed to be certain. But he is an aficionado about how to use social media in an effective and, you know, just makes it so that we can spread our message just a little bit more. You know, certainly it can be a very powerful microphone. As we all know, it can also be a place to embarrass yourself or do dumb things or nefarious things. So it just kind of depends on how you decide to use it. But certainly we could all use a little bit more sharing, I think, of, you know, clinical pearls or thoughts and ideas, you know, like Dr. Wright was mentioning, there was someone who had posted a case on Twitter that he was responding to, you know, random person from India that had some questions that tweeted to see us. And so then Dr. Wright followed up with them for me. And I just, I think there are some really great opportunities for us to continue to use this version of a microphone to spread our message and to hopefully help people in their patient care needs. So Uh, It would be helpful for recruiting, I think. I think so. Yeah, I think it definitely helps people also just find us. So that will be May 31st and at 2 o'clock Mountain is what I'm anticipating as of now, but just waiting for final confirmation. But watch the newsletter, watch your emails, all those kinds of things, and you'll see that come through. And then certainly we'll talk about it next week in Factualine as well, I suspect. And I think those are the announcements for the week. Cool. Very cool. Yeah. Should we do final stitches? I think so. Who wants to go first? Well, I can. I have a little guilty pleasure to share with everyone. I watched I Want to Dance with Somebody, the new Netflix special about Whitney Houston. And I have been (gasps) listening to Whitney Houston's greatest hits for the last week. Yes. Her hits are just absolutely phenomenal. I mean, yes, she just revolutionized the time frame when it came to music. It's unfortunate she's gone, but boy, she really left some amazing songs. Who was she? Whitney Houston. You know Whitney Houston. <laughs> you just shut oh, your she... mouth. So they did a whole, The Wondery did a whole podcast series. It's like a six episode series on her life as that was coming out as well. And I have been slowly making my way through it. 
and I love it. It is. I totally agree with you. It's a guilty pleasure, but you get to hear her awesome it music, is. and I just thought Whitney Houston was an amazing singer, and oh, yes, so fun. She just has an incredible voice. It's just, I don't know. They actually used to call her the voice. It's amazing. Do you remember that medley that she did at, at the Grammy Awards? They show it in the uh, movie on Netflix, and it was just absolutely, it's incredible. I, I forgot that she did that. Wow. She had pipes, man. She she definitely did. And she opened the door to so many other you know artists. I mean, you look at like the music that Beyonce puts out. It is such a direct reflection of the music that you know, the Whitney Houston put out and like, it just, it really formed a lane for so many artists like Mariah Carey. And there were lots of people whose music is what? there's reflections of their music in hers. And I think that's cool. Yeah, it really is. And it actually segues well into the month of May because the month of May is mental health awareness month, right? Yes, it is. And so, uh, you know, obviously she you know, had an addiction problem. And so I think it's just nice to just remind people that if you have any issues going on in your life, uh, it's not a weakness to seek help. No, I think that that's a very good segue and a very important message. Yeah. Indeed. Can't improve upon that. That's fantastic. Thank you, Zach. Indeed. I had the chance, we attended the ESTES meeting um, this last week because CWIS had a guest symposium opportunity that had been kind of facilitated by Dr. Stefan Schulstrust and terrific opportunity, just really good contacts and a lot of people that were very excited and I was really excited to be part of it. But it did also afford me the opportunity to have a more in-depth conversation with Dr. Coimbra during one of the events. And so we were kind of sitting aside chatting for a bit and he's such a, you know, such a delightful human was saying to me, you know, and I would not do justice to his delightful Portuguese accent. So I'm not even going to try. I'll just do it in my normal voice. <laughs> but he was saying that he loves being a trauma surgeon. And, you know, the moment the, the gunshot goes off or someone gets stabbed and they're coming through the door. And he said, you know, your adrenaline's flowing. And, and I like being, you know, useful in that moment and using my skills and being so helpful. And, you know, you're firing on all cylinders. You know, he kind of had some different sort of analogies for, for what that feels like and how, you know, he was so grateful for this role. I mean, it really, he feels like it really was his life's calling. He said, however, my work with the World Trauma Congress and my work with the journal, I love it. And he said, and it just fills my soul, you know, and talked about how when you work with a society, when, when you're working with the journal, things like that, you are planting seeds and, you know, sharing messages with people that will, you know, never necessarily see your face or, or otherwise, you know, have reason to make contact with you, but you're giving them knowledge and information and, and pieces of your experience and, and knowledge that they can carry with them and then go teach someone else and just that ripple effect, you know, and he just had a lot of really lovely things to say about why this work that we do is so meaningful. And it really, it just really kind of filled my cup. I thought, yeah, that makes sense. You know, that you can write one paper and have it published and you know so many people are going to read that. And even if it doesn't seem like the most groundbreaking study that's ever happened, it may be something that someone is you know, just the right thing that someone is looking for at some point, or we may, you know, be putting on a case review that doesn't seem super critical in the moment. But if it helps someone else then go help another patient, you know, or their patient that next day with, you know, better operation or better PT or something like that, that just, it's pretty cool that we have that opportunity. So segue to that is if you 
are looking for opportunities to volunteer and thinking, man, I'd love to give some of my time to CUIS, don't you worry. Those opportunities are still available. So let me know if you want to feel that good, warm, fuzzy that Dr. Coimbra and I were talking about because we got spots for you. Love it. Well, I've realized that not everybody who's listening to this podcast probably eats meat on a regular basis or enjoys beef, but some of us do. And I had the wonderful opportunity last evening to eat Wagyu beef from, not from Japan, but from Nebraska, because my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Zach Bowen, sent us a cooler full of Wagyu beef, and it was exquisite. It's just, if you haven't had a chance to try it, next time you're in a fancy steakhouse and it's on the menu, do yourself a favor, spend that extra 75 bucks and get a piece of Wagyu beef. You will not be disappointed. And you, you, you probably won't be able to eat it every time you go out or you'll, you'll end up broke. But what a life's guilty pleasure if you like beef. That's my final stitch. Thank you, Zach. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. That sounds delightful. Right. Well, I wish you guys a good week and we'll meet back here uh, in a week. Have a great day. All right, guys. Thank you. Yeah, you guys have a great weekend as well. Thanks, guys. Bye. All right, bye-bye.